Hey, this is Joe Bakmotsky. Welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. We can know that life after cancer treatment is not always easy. Maybe you don't have as much energy as you'd like. Maybe you're still dealing with side effects. Or maybe you've put on weight that you'd like to lose. Or maybe you've lost weight that maybe you want to gain. Whatever the case might be, this is where having the right nutrition can make a huge difference to your life. So today I'm talking to Lauren and Elise, the nutritionists who specialize in oncology so they can give you fantastic advice on getting your nutrition right after cancer. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. I loved our conversation before on nutrition during cancer treatment. So now I'm really excited to like get your insight into really eating well after treatment. So tell me, first of all, what I want to understand is your perspective. And maybe we can start with you, Elise. Is why actually nutrition, why is it so important after cancer treatment? That's a great question, Joe. So nutrition, as we spoke about last time, is hugely, hugely important during treatment, but equally as important after treatment as well. So often some of the anti-cancer treatments or therapies or surgeries, so that could be chemo, radiotherapy, even immune therapy, obviously damage the cancer cells and kill off the cancer cells, which is exactly what we want them to do. But what they also unfortunately do is damage some of our healthy cells as well. So good nutrition and eating well helps to repair and heal our healthy cells. It also helps to keep us stronger during treatment. So the stronger we are during treatment, this improves our management of side effects after treatment as well. It provides our body uh, with the energy that it needs to function efficiently and effectively. And um, by achieving and maintaining a healthy weight, this actually helps to reduce our risk cancer occurrence in the future. Um, As well, uh, maintaining a healthy weight helps to reduce our risk of other chronic diseases such as heart disease, diabetes, kidney disease, liver disease, etc. So I guess because of all of these factors, it really highlights how important nutrition is after treatment as well. Yeah, that makes so much sense, Elise. And you know, Lauren, so, you know, because most people, we don't really think about cancer and nutrition in the same space. Is, Is there a science behind it? Yeah, heaps of science behind it, Joe. We wouldn't be here if there wasn't. (laughs) We only practice when there's really solid evidence to support the advice that we're giving. And what we're really fortunate to have is a really strong community of uh, wonderful researchers and scientists and health professionals out there who are really dedicated to making sure that they look into the best nutrition advice in the cancer survivorship space not just generally for people who have undergone cancer therapy, but specifically for different types of cancer as well. So the the nutrition advice for someone who's gone through breast cancer treatment could well be very different to that of someone who's gone through pancreatic or lung cancer treatment. So huge amount of science to support the advice that we give. One really useful organisation is the World Cancer Research Fund who have a wonderful report that summarizes the evidence that's available to us to provide recommendations for eating and drinking after cancer treatment. Well, I think it's so fantastic that it's targeted towards, you know, people with 
who've gone through a specific cancer treatment or, or a specific cancer, because that means that your advice is really specific to you. I know that when you were helping me and there was, you know, specific recommendations for, you know, things to keep in mind for testicular cancer, which is incredibly helpful because that means that you can look at things that are specific to you and your health and where you're at right now. So tell me, Alice, so I kind of want to zoom out a bit and talk about the biggest obstacles that we really have in creating a healthy life after cancer. What are some of the things that really get in the way for us? Yeah, and Joe, look, you, you would know firsthand that going through cancer treatment changes your life profoundly. We have lots of clients and patients tell us that their life is actually never the same after cancer treatment, which, yeah, I'm sure you can vouch for. One of the biggest obstacles that I find is challenging for patients to overcome is the ongoing side effects after treatment. So it's very well established that uh, there are a whole host of side effects as a result of anti-cancer therapy. So that could include nausea and vomiting, fatigue, ulceration of the mouth or the esophagus, issues with your bowels, so constipation or diarrhea. And a lot of these side effects actually are not only present during treatment, but after treatment as well. So it's really difficult for patients to actually get back into normal life, you know, get back into work and relationships with their loved ones and families after they've been through this sort of treatment and after they've experienced all of these side effects. Often a lot of these side effects result in patients not being able to eat well or enough, which can lead to weight loss. But also what's important for us to note is it can lead to muscle wasting. Now, what we know is that after treatment, patients who have actually lost their lean body mass and their muscles actually have a slowed metabolic rate. Now, this slowed metabolic rate can often result in compensatory weight gain after treatment. So this, again, makes it really a really challenging obstacle because patients are often being told during treatment to you know, eat high-energy, high-protein foods, which are often good, but sometimes they are encouraged to eat foods that are more energy-dense and not necessarily as nutrient-rich to help maintain their weight during treatment. And when they continue with these behaviours after treatment, they end up gaining weight, which can be a really, really challenging obstacle to overcome, you know, when you've just gone through a really difficult time going through chemo radiotherapy and then trying to transition back into normal life. Yeah, and uh, I, I can completely agree with you that it, you know, it changes your life completely. And so maybe, Lauren, you can talk to me about what is a metabolic rate and what is a good metabolic rate? So a metabolic rate really is a measurement of how your body processes fuel. So if you're someone who, for example, has a high metabolic rate, it means you've got a fast metabolism, which means that you might break down and burn through fuel more quickly than somebody else. If you've got a slower metabolic rate, you might burn through fuel more slowly and you're more predisposed to putting on weight, so storing fuel as fat. And what we know and what Elise was talking about before is that if you lose muscle mass, you end up with a slower metabolism. And a slower metabolism means you're more likely to gain weight as fat. And that can be detrimental for our long-term health, as Elise mentioned. But also we know that if you've finished your cancer treatment and your energy levels are low and you haven't been exercising or moving or working as much as usual, your whole body system isn't working as it used to. And simply reverting back to what you used to eat might not necessarily be the best way forward for you because you're now in a new body 
to some extent. It's been through a lot, a lot of trauma, and it's got different needs to what it did uh, when you first started your cancer treatment. Yeah, I love what you talk about the fact that we can change it and influence it. Because I think when it comes to, you know, nutrition and your metabolism, I always thought, and maybe it's just my mistake, but I always thought there is something that you are basically born with and you kind of have to live with and you can't really influence it in any way. But it sounds like what you are talking about is that we can actually influence it and change it so that it works for you and not against you, right? Absolutely. And we can do in many ways. So we can do that by altering body composition. So for example, putting on muscle mass and losing body fat will change your metabolic rate. But certainly there's different ways that foods are processed in our body. And if we choose foods that are broken down and absorbed really quickly versus foods that are really slow release energy, that changes the way your body functions as well. It changes the hormones that are released the inflammatory markers that circulate, and there's lots of links between the fuel that you eat and how your body will function from an energy point of view and from a health point of view. So what are the best things that you can recommend in terms of the things that you can keep in mind in terms of importance to when it comes to eating well, you know, after cancer treatment? So slow release, um, so look, Joe, the best sort of foods to eat and what Lauren and I always recommend are whole foods. So foods that are not packaged or processed. And um, so usually these sort of foods are fruits, vegetables, whole grain breads and cereals, nuts and seeds, quality proteins. proteins. So poultry, chicken, turkey, lean meats, fish and seafood, um, but also legumes. So things like lentils, chickpeas, kidney beans. Really anything that comes in a natural state is a really valuable addition to your diet. It's about finding balance in how to separate which portions of of each thing is right for you and your body. And that's going to be different and unique for every individual. But one thing that's really key in terms of promoting a strong and healthy metabolism is ensuring that you're meeting your body's protein needs. And we do find a lot in cancer survivorship after cancer treatment, there is a, a shift in the way people eat to be really convenient and easy foods that uh, tend to be rich in carbohydrates and, and quite quickly absorbed by the body. And as dietitians who work in cancer care, we know that the advice that we give someone during cancer treatment is quite different to the advice that we give someone after cancer treatment. And so it's really key to speak to a professional in the field to transition your diet from your during treatment advice to your after treatment advice. So you don't hang on to some of those habits that are no longer suitable for you. What about organic foods? Is that something that you guys recommend to focus on? Look, not necessarily, Joe. There's lots of research done into organic foods and whether or not they're more health promoting than others. And what the research generally shows at the end of the day is that individuals who eat an organic diet in some studies have shown that they've got fewer health conditions in long-term studies. But what we also know about people who eat organic food is that they tend to be of a higher income level. They tend to be better educated, have good jobs, they can afford good health care. And so making a direct link between eating organic and being healthier isn't possible because there are too many other factors associated with eating an organic diet. 
So in terms of recommending organic food, we absolutely wouldn't. Eating any fresh produce is very beneficial. If you can afford organic food and it's your preference and it makes you feel good, we are 100% supportive of that because we know that there may be some benefit, but it's not essential in order to be healthy. And one thing that we um, often get a lot of clients ask us, Joe, is um, is the nutrition composition of the organic food superior? And again, what the research tells us is that actually it's not that different to normal fresh produce. One thing we always recommend is if you do want to eat normal fresh produce is just make sure that you give it a really good wash before you eat it to make sure that it gets rid of any herbicides or pesticides. Well, I think that's great advice because it really also, you know, just shines a spotlight on the fact that it's affordable and doable and that it's all realistic. Like, because there is, I think there's a lot of stigma around eating well, that it has to be expensive and it has to kind of change your lifestyle. Whereas I think what you guys are saying is that it's really something that you can do quite naturally. For sure. And one other thing with organic produce too, Joe, is that during cancer treatment, So if you're undergoing cancer therapy and your immune system is compromised, so with some chemotherapies, for example, there is a theory that organic produce is a less safe option for you. Because if we think about the normal processing of of other produce that uses chemicals to help rid that food of any bacteria and germs, that's really important for someone with a poor immune system because that bacteria that might be present on perhaps more likely on organic produce, could be a risk of infection for that individual. So there is an argument that organic food during cancer treatment is not a good idea and we should be having the foods with the chemical processing having been done to it. Wow, I did not see that coming. Cool, I think that that's really important to know. And I think I want to jump in with the body composition thing. You know, I think we're talking about changing the body composition. The first time I've heard that phrase, I really, I was, I think my oncologist said that, you know, your body composition has changed after treatment. And I was like, what does that actually mean? And I think I realized that it was a polite way of him telling me that I got fat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Which I think is, is it's important to know where you're at, which I think leads me to really my next question, because I think one of the things that is incredibly important when we're talking about, you know, changing the way you eat, changing your lifestyle, maybe doing some exercise or movement. Well, what are the metrics that you can keep in mind so that you can focus on getting the right results, you know, for your body, for, for you and your life? We can probably even use... Use an example for this if you feel comfortable because if yeah, by all means, if all we've done in your care is, is measure your weight, we would have seen no change. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Your weight hasn't changed. But what we've known through other measurements that we've taken, looking at your fat mass and your fat stores, is that your body weight hasn't changed, but your fat mass has significantly decreased and your muscle mass has increased. Yay! Woo! <laughs> Which right. is a, a huge achievement and certainly an important thing for you to report back to your oncologist to say, yes, my body composition has changed this time, perhaps in the right direction. But certainly it's very important that we look at different metrics of body composition. Um, we can do that certainly through weight, but there is lots of limitations to that measure. There are some really clever machines that we can use that will help to measure body composition in terms of fat and muscle mass, your water percentage, the weight of your skeletal mass, so your bones, 
And these are often available in a clinical setting. So you might have heard of DEXA scans or BIA scales. They're sometimes available and really useful to have a, a more accurate measure of what's happening in your actual body. So is this something that, you know, you would recommend to do as part of the practice of someone who is working with you? You establish a baseline and then kind of you work towards some sort of a target, right? Like towards where you want to be. Absolutely. And I guess the challenging thing is, Joe, that often scales like the BIA scales or DEXA machines, they're very expensive and they're not often accessible. So therefore using different metric system like Lauren did with you, um, with your waist circumference. There's another measure called mid-upper arm muscle circumference as well. So there are, there are different options and other sort of metric systems that we can use when specific body composition analysis machines are not present. Another screening tool we use is um, something called the PGSGA, which is a patient-generated subjective global assessment. And that's a screening tool that assesses a patient's nutritional status. And that's, again, a specific tool that's validated in the oncology population and a tool that we, I'd say we pretty much use for every patient. And part of that tool, Joe, is that we look at different muscle stores and fat stores across the body. So when I poke and prod you, I'm doing it for good reason, and that's to identify any change in your muscle mass and fat mass compared to previous consults. Yeah, I'm glad, to, I'm glad to know that there was actually a reason to the madness. That's good. <laughs> well, I think it's incredibly, like all of those metrics, guys, that you, you kind of touched on, I think are incredibly important from the perspective of being motivated. Because I know that when it comes to, you know, getting results, and I think it's no secret that, you know, when you go to work with a nutritionist, such as, you know, yourselves who specializes in oncology, you're going to have to make some changes. And I think that's true for kind of any area of life. If you want to get results, then you really want to be prepared and you want to be focused on the results that you want. Because I think that is one of the things that was really important for me. And that was important when I caught up with you today, Lauren, is to, to know that, you know, we measured where I was at and to know that I'm making progress. And I think for all of us, when, when it comes to whether that's losing weight or, you know, having more energy or decreasing other sort of side effects, whatever that might be for you, you really want to know that you are making steps forward, that you are making consistent progress that is right for you and your life, because that's what keeps you motivated. Otherwise, it's very hard to stay on track, right? Absolutely, for sure. And what we spoke a lot about today was not just the measurements in terms of your body composition, but really how you're feeling and what you've noticed in a change of your energy levels and your function and how you feel in your own skin and the ability to be able to track that and report that back to somebody and make sense of it and relate it to the food that you're eating and how you're fueling your body is so motivating. What's perhaps not so motivating is a simple number on a scale. Now, it's just a number. For a lot of people, it, it means a lot, but I think what perhaps means more is how you actually feel and how your body's functioning. Yeah, absolutely. So, Elise, what about, you know, when we're talking about healthy weight or, you know, kind of healthy body composition? So, what are some of the things that, you know, we should keep in mind when we're thinking about that? What is healthy? So, I mean, look, Joe, healthy is different for everyone. One measure that we often use, and again, it's not gospel and certainly not the best measure, is the body mass index. 
and that is based on a healthy weight range, I guess. So the equation is your weight divided by your height in metres squared. And then it gives you a specific number that fits you into different categories, be that underweight, normal weight, overweight or obese. Um, and again, whilst we know that your weight on the scales is not always going to be the best indicator for your progress, it is a good general measure to know if you are in, within the healthy weight range. Where this, I guess, gets a little bit complex is for patients who do have a large volume of muscle mass. We know that muscle weighs more than fat. Therefore, for a male that you know has a, has a really strong physique that has a lot of muscle, they actually may fall into the overweight or obese weight range. But you know, for us as dietitians, by eyeballing them, we can actually tell that they don't fall into that weight range. So I guess that is a good um, general measure um, of really your body for composition the population. For, for the general population. Yeah. But you'll know, Joe, that similarly with your weight, your weight didn't change, so your BMI wouldn't have changed. So it doesn't give you the whole picture. And when it comes to looking at body composition, it's important for a qualified health professional to look at certainly different stores, whether it's your muscle and fat stores and your fluid status. But I think more importantly, doing a really thorough assessment of your nutritional intake and identifying what links there are to what you're eating and how that's fueling your body. Because regardless of someone within a, a normal or even an underweight category, they might be eating all of their nutritional needs but of, of nutrient-poor foods. So they could be meeting their caloric needs or energy needs just with ice creams all day. But that's, and they could be weight stable and their BMI could be healthy, but that's not a reflection of health. I do think it's a good starting point for someone who might be starting out, uh, you know, who wants just a baseline measure. They maybe don't have access to the IA scales or a DEXA scan and they kind of want to know what their starting point is. They might be at the, at the beginning of their health journey. You know, BMI is a really simple and easy equation and measure to have as, as a baseline. Um, but as Lauren mentioned, obviously, making sure that you're taking into account the foods that they're eating, but also their, you know, visual, you know, muscle status and body composition as well. Yeah, absolutely. And as someone, you know, who's gone through active treatment, I know that like this whole fear of cancer coming back is a pretty big deal. Like, because, you know, before every checkup, you're kind of thinking, well, um, you know, is, is it going to come back? And you get, get all of these worry thoughts into your head. So what about, you know, when it comes to nutrition after cancer? And I know we touched on that earlier, but could you talk more about how can nutrition help to minimize the chances of cancer recurrence, minimize the chances of it coming back? There's strong evidence to support that our nutrition does certainly play a role in the risk of cancer recurrence. The biggest evidence exists for our body weight and an individual cancer survivor who might be holding extra weight and be overweight or within the obese category has a higher risk of recurrence than someone who's at a normal weight. So one of the biggest things that a cancer survivor or someone who's finished treatment for cancer can focus on for their long-term health is making sure that they reduce their weight to be within a healthy weight range. And that's where it's so key to have support to be able to take those measurements and review your diet to make sure that you're preserving your health as best you can. And is it, is it about body weight or is it about a specific, you know, let's say belly fat or is it like, a, a, you know, fat in a particular area of the body? 
And unfortunately, the, the research hasn't been able to pinpoint what that is. So all the research shows, and there's, a, there's strong research, but it's not specific research, is that it's that weight classification that's key. So while we have predictions that, and hypotheses that it is the fat stores that are contributing to longer-term cancer recurrence risk, the research isn't yet strong enough to support that claim. Yeah, I think, Joe, with heart disease, diabetes, certainly that central adiposity, we know that there's a significantly increased risk of those sort of chronic conditions. But as Lauren said, as far as cancer recurrence goes, I think there's a lot more research in that space that needs to happen before we can make those you know, solid claims. I know that though um, it's certainly the case for me, but it, I think it's the case for many other folks as well, is that after going through cancer treatment, particularly if it's chemotherapy or radiation, sometimes it can really dramatically increase, you know, chances of heart disease. And, and definitely that's why, you know, having um, healthy weight is also make, can make a big difference. And that's one of the reasons why I personally am, you know, concerned. Because I think one of the things that uh, about cancer, you know, at least in kind of in my experience and in my journey was that I couldn't really do anything about getting cancer in the first place. But now having gone through this experience and now, you know, luckily I'm, I'm cancer free now, but I'm thinking if I can do anything to minimize the chances of it coming back or getting some other cancer or, or getting some other nasty conditions such as, you know, heart problems and stuff that, you know, I'm at a higher risk of, then I really want to be in control of that. I really want to do my best to try and influence that. And I think that when it comes to exercise and when it comes to nutrition and to getting some proper advice on this front can make a huge difference because it puts you back into control of your life, right? And that's true. That's one of the amazing things about nutrition. You said it beautifully. You had no choice. You didn't choose to get cancer, but you can choose the way you're going to live your life in the future. And you can actually control the food that you're eating to minimize your risk of cancer recurrence which I think is amazing that nutrition can be that powerful that it can have such a profound impact on our health. Yeah. The other thing that's really exciting for us as dietitians, Joe, is that there's certainly lots of advice depending on the cancer diagnoses that you've had as to different types of foods and nutrients that are most beneficial for you to reduce not just your risk of cancer recurrence but reduce the risk of your cancer recurring. So the advice that we might give someone who's finished their treatment for breast cancer could be quite focused on looking at their alcohol intake and their intake of antioxidant-rich foods. And if we compare that to somebody who might have had treatment to their throat cancer, we know that there's strong evidence that increasing their intake of particular vegetables is really key. So depending on the different cancer types, there's different nutrients and different foods that play a really key role. Lauren and I had a great time when we first started our business doing comprehensive literature reviews of all of the different tumour streams and also nutrition interventions and building some really robust resources to give to our patients so that they had specific uh, information and interventions that they could implement to reduce their risk of recurrence of their specific cancer in the future. Yeah, that's fantastic that you guys are doing this work that is very targeted towards, um, you know, folks and, and the, the specific situation that they're in. So I was wondering if you could share like top three strategies that someone could incorporate 
into their daily life, you know, having gone through cancer treatment? Absolutely. So first and foremost is eat more plants. So load up your plates with heaps of non-starchy vegetables. So things like spinach, tomatoes, capsicum, mushrooms. I could go on forever. There's heaps and heaps of non-starchy vegetables. They're not only really rich in fiber, but also really rich in powerful antioxidants that actually help to protect our cells, which are really important in the context of reducing your risk of cancer recurrence in the future. They're also quite low in kilojoules and also fill you up. So if you have a diet that's rich in in plants and vegetables, you're much more likely to be of a healthy weight. Fruit as well, so aiming for two pieces of fruit per day. And again, that's to ensure that you're getting the valuable micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants and fibre as well. And another food group that we love is the legumes, uh, lentils and pulses, as again, they're really rich in fibre, but they also contain a particular starch called resistant starch that actually helps to nourish our gut microbiome. So it acts as a fuel source for the good bacteria that live in our gut, which we know has a really positive impact on our immune system, but also keeping um, our gut nice and healthy and reducing our risk of bowel cancer. So we always recommend eating the rainbow. So the more vibrant colours of the fruits and vegetables, the better. So that's number one. That was a long one. Sorry, guys. (laughs) It was a very colourful one. I loved it. I'm going to go a bit more um, what perhaps not to do. So number two, I would say, would be to try and limit your intake of processed foods, in particular processed meat. So if we think about processed meats, we think about ham and salami, bacon, hot dogs. What we know is that having an intake of processed meats of any amount, but particularly of a high amount, can increase our risk of colorectal cancer and damage to our colon cells. So we would encourage you to minimise your intake of processed foods, processed meats, but also takeaway foods and packaged biscuits and cakes that are often prepared with particular types of fats called trans fats, which can increase the levels of inflammation in our body and can increase our risk of health problems. So number one, eat the rainbow and include those beautiful legumes. But number two is try to minimise your intake of processed foods. What's number three? So number three, I think we've spoken about this quite robustly throughout this <laughs> podcast, but it's um, achieving and maintaining a healthy weight through proper nutrition, but also complemented with exercise as well. So Joe, you're a perfect example of what a, you know, team <laughs> approach of, you know, a really great exercise program and fabulous dietitian, how that can really help to improve your symptoms and make you feel better and ultimately improve your health outcomes. Yeah, that's fantastic, guys. I love this advice. And talk to me about alcohol, because I think it's something that, again, you touched on that it might even affect cancer recurrence for some cancers. What's your advice on this front? Yeah, so there certainly is evidence that uh, alcohol consumption at, at higher levels can increase the risk of certain types of cancers. In particular, we know that if somebody has undergone treatment for breast cancer, there's Uh, particular recommendations to reduce alcohol intake to below that of what the general population would be recommended. Alcohol, unfortunately, can cause damage in our body, which can predispose us to health concerns of all types, cancer being one of them. 
So the recommendations for alcohol intake for a cancer survivor would be to aim to have no more than two standard drinks per night and to have two alcohol-free days per week. And we actually try and add add on an additional uh, goal for our patients. I usually say aim for three to four alcohol-free days a week just to improve improve your health but also reduce your risk of chronic diseases. Yeah. The other thing with that's important to know is that certainly in, in the case of breast cancer, those recommendations are lower. So it's actually recommended to have less than one standard drink per day uh, in breast cancer. So about half a drink per day is the maximum recommended intake after breast cancer. Now we know that people live a life and balance is really important. And so while these recommendations are certainly worth striving towards, it's not going to be achievable in every case all the time. And so that's something that it's important to understand in the context of your whole world and your whole life. And any progression towards that recommendation is going to benefit your health. Yeah, and I think that's, and I think I'm really glad that we keep coming back to this theme of finding the right balance because I think it's no use and, and I know we've talked about this before that it's, it's no use of, of just doing something where you're forcing yourself to do it because it's not sustainable it's not going to stick and ultimately you're just going to feel like you're torturing yourself whereas I think when you're um, setting yourself some goals that are you know specific to you and your life and I think it is important of course to have someone like like yourselves to kind of guide the person through it. I think it's really important for you to find, you know, a sustainable way of living a healthy lifestyle, you know, that isn't some pretty picture or isn't some, you know, imaginary thing. It's very real and tangible to you and where you are. And look, Joe, we don't expect that someone goes from drinking a bottle of wine every night with dinner, goes to not drinking at all. As you mentioned, it needs to be, short and small attainable goals you know towards the recommendation when we don't want you to go to cold turkey uh, we want you to enjoy your life but obviously working towards those recommendations and one thing joe you alluded to multiple times in our conversation is that it's so important that those goals are not our goals not the dietitian or the doctor or the exercise physiologist goals that it's your goal as the individual who's going through this because you're only going to change your behaviour if you're motivated to do so. And so if you come into our office and say, this is what I eat and this is what I drink, don't touch what I drink because I'm not going to go there, but you can improve my health through what I eat, great, then we'll work in that space. Otherwise, there's, there's no point us providing advice that doesn't fit into your world. Yeah, absolutely. I love that because I think I totally agree with you and I, I really think that there's a huge difference between what you need to do and what you want to do because i think we all know that we need to do so many things but it really comes down to what you want right because if you want something then you're really gonna put the effort into it you're really you're really gonna strive to achieve that because we all know that we, we need to do this we need to do that but it's all important to focus and do the things that are right for you and sometimes it it's, it's all about reaching out and finding you know, I think someone like, like you guys to kind of help to facilitate that process. So I guess if someone wanted to work with you individually, whether that's face-to-face or online, so how would they find you? Yeah, no worries, Joe. We'd, we'd be very happy to hear from anyone. So people can reach out to us 
certainly um, via our website, which is www.encorenutrition.com, spelt O-N-C-O-R-E, nutrition. Email address, our phone number, that's all available on our website there. Um, Certainly we've got two, soon to be three locations in Melbourne that we practice out of, but we also offer phone consultations through our telehealth service all across the world. So it doesn't matter where you are, what time zone you're in, we will find a way to be able to support you if that's something that you're interested in. Fantastic. Thanks so much, guys. And um, thank you for your energy and your time today. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, thank Joe. Thank you for having us. Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky, and thanks so much for listening. Listen, I just want to take a moment to really thank you for your time, because I know that it's precious, but also I want to congratulate you. I really want to congratulate you on listening to this podcast, because as we both know, cancer is incredibly hard to deal with, and you don't want to go it alone. And you want all the support and all the advice that you can get to, to stay on top of it, to stay on top of your worries during cancer. So I, I want to tell you about the tools that I have available on my website on simplifycancer.com that can really help you. So all of these tools are available under the tools menu on simplifycancer.com. So tool number one, that's the first visit oncologist checklist. So if the word oncologist bothers you, like I, I know it really freaked me out. If you are worried about your first appointment, as, as again, as we all are, then this can really help you with some key questions that you want to ask. The key thing, of course, is having a list like this means that you won't forget something important, which is easy enough to do when, when you've got a million things going through your head. Plus, it's a handy PDF, so it's easy to print and write down all the answers so you don't forget. So then there is the outcome map. Like this is a really simple but really powerful tool that I have developed to help you deal with worries about something specific, something that's bothering you right now. So maybe you're waiting for your test results and your mind's off running in a million different directions. Or maybe you've got an ache or pain and you don't know what it is. Like, is it cancer? Is that a side effect from treatment? Or maybe is that something else altogether? So it will kind of help you to put it all together so you can you can get a bird's eye view and decide how to best deal with it. Number three is mastering your emotions during cancer. Now, this is a walk through all the stages that you go through as a patient and as a caregiver through anger and through guilt and fear and how you can address your needs, your emotional needs on every level during cancer. Like it came about after many discussions that I had with my friend and my colleague, her name is Jill. Her husband had prostate cancer, so uh, so he, she has this kind of caregiver's perspective. And we both like talked about how there are so many times um, when you go through cancer when you kind of just feel alone and you're struggling. You're on this roller coaster of emotions, and it's kind of full on and it's hard to deal with. So there, there's an audio version that comes along with it, and there's a link to download the MP3 if that's what you want, or you can just listen to it online and you know and just. Uh, listen along with the PDF. So another one is testicular cancer support kit. This has a one-page summary of what the testicular cancer journey looks like that you can check out for yourself or share with your family or friends. Like it's got a helicopter view of all the symptoms and treatments and who's involved and what happens when. And 
it's really great one kind of page view of like what happens during testicular cancer. Plus, the kit also includes like ready-to-go email templates for your family, friends, and your workmates. So you can kind of share what's what's happened. Maybe you want to break the news on cancer and you don't want to think about and wreck your brain on what to write. So you can just copy and paste. You can tweak it a little bit so to suit your personality and you're good to go. And I've also done the same thing for prostate cancer. So check out the prostate cancer support kit. Again, it's showing all the treatment options and stages on one page. So you can walk someone through it like someone from your family or a friend. And they know what to expect and how it all happens. And of course, when you sign up for any of my tools, we just talked about you also get an email from me when, when there's a new episode that's kind of relevant to you right now and other news from the world of simplified cancer and listen i'm, I'm going to keep on asking you about how i'm doing here i mean are you getting what, what you're looking for was there something in particular that that really made sense to you or is there a question that you want to ask or maybe there's there's just something that you you want to get off your chest like please i need to know just reply to any of my emails or send me an email right now. My email is joe at simplifycancer.com. So that's J-O-E at simplifycancer.com. And send me an email whenever you've got anything on your mind. So again, I want to thank you for listening. Till next time. 